This is the David Birnbaum Connection, and I'm David Birnbaum. This week, my guest is Andreas Fuentes. Andreas has been involved in the UN climate negotiations for the past 10 years, and he currently works for Climate Action Network International. He and I talk about what the climate negotiations looked like 10 years ago, as well as how they've changed and where they are now. We also get into some specifics around how he thinks and how I think climate can be impacted and how we can really make that change. It's quite an interesting conversation and I was happy to have it. We have very different views on how to make change and how quickly we need to make change. And I was pleasantly surprised by how open he was to the differing opinions. And it's something that you don't see often in the wider media framework. We also get a bit into citizen engagement. Andreas did run for Waterloo City Council in this most recent municipal election. And we talk about what that experience was like and get into a bit around engagement, finance law, and then pull it back into how that approach and those different views impact the way in which climate action will be taken. It's a really great conversation, and I'm happy to have had it, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. I'm here with Andreas. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you're someone I've wanted to chat with, you know, at length for a while because you you just fascinate me, I guess. You you seem to have varied interests and you kind of also go go into them quite a bit. So you ran for city council at Waterloo, uh like city councilor of Waterloo, but you're also an environmental consultant. Uh, you know, you're interested in journalism and, and you've been involved in some papers as well. So I'm really, I, you know, I guess I want to know if you could pinpoint what your passion is or, or like, do you say you're, you're multi-passionate? Like, why do you want to do so much stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think my passion is social change. Okay. Um, within what I believe. And my philosophy has always been take the opportunities you're given. And so that sometimes leads me in directions I didn't expect. Yeah. Um, like, I think when I was in university, I was mostly focused on human rights and that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. then I literally got a very random opportunity to go to the Copenhagen climate change negotiations, um, which were supposed to be like where the big deal was signed and there was all this hype around it. And I I honestly kind of went almost as a tourist, like as an observer. We didn't, the group that I went with, the International Federation of Liberal and Radical Youth, didn't really have an agenda. I think it was the first time they had sent a delegation. And yeah, like we just, it was an opportunity. And I I was interested in the environment, but not as passionately as I am now. Yeah. And I went and I kind of, I actually didn't catch the bug on that one. Um, it was actually, it was, it was chaotic. It was so horrible. Um, (laughs) like people are literally traumatized by it in the environmental world. We still talk about it. It's a reference point for what not to happen. Yeah. So what, what happened there? I, I like, I didn't even know this was a thing at all. So can you provide me some, you know, background and why it was so terrible? Yeah. So, I mean, um, it was terrible both politically and logistically. So logistically, yeah. they had this conference center that I think 
could accommodate something like 20,000 people, maybe 25,000 people. And they registered something like 40,000 people. Oh, wow. So you can see the problems already there. <laughs> yeah. Um, people had to like line up for hours to get in. Yeah. And then obviously at these things, you have like heads of state and it being like a major one, you had the big heads of state, like Obama was there. Uh, Merkel was there. So like all yeah. these people that need extra security and therefore even more restrictions on who can go in and out. And then like you, you can't have a venue that's over capacity yeah. plus secure it. Yeah. So by the end, like we had a delegation of, I think, 120 something people. And the second week they instituted this secondary pass thing. So not like even if you were accredited, now you needed a second badge to get in. And I think by the end, our Canadian delegation of like 25, 26 people only had two badges to actually get in. So, yeah, so you had to we had to like spend half days, that kind of thing. And it was, yeah. so it was really frustrating. I mean, I knew very little about the process. So going in, I was, I felt pretty lost in it. Yeah. Um, it was still a cool experience. Like, so aside from the negotiations, there's all these side events at these things and which basically are like people sharing best practices yeah. or kind of trying to socialize their proposals or their ideas. Mm -hmm. And this again, being like, a major summit uh, where like all these great things were supposed to happen. They were supposed to sign the deal to solve climate change. Uh, there were some pretty big people there. Uh, I mean, I remember I got into a room to hear Desmond Tutu speak. Mm -hmm. um, and like, it was, yeah, it was pretty, it was still pretty impactful in that way. But then yeah. politically it was also a disaster. Yeah. So what um, happened? Why didn't we get the, you know, the, the Copenhagen climate accord? Yeah, so I um, basically the U.S. tried to bully its way into it uh, and bully some of the developing countries into signing an agreement that they didn't agree with. Okay. Um, and yeah, it. I mean, that it's there's a lot of complex things into it that I'm not sure I fully even comprehend to this day of all yeah. the political backstabbing and stuff that happened. Yeah. But... Um. But it almost actually killed the UN negotiation process. Oh, wow. That's how bad it was. Um, yeah, like at the end, they kind of managed to pull off something they could say was agreed to, but it wasn't the big deal. So like the Paris Accord that we have now mm -hmm. should have been the P Copenhagen Accord. And what like, year was the Copenhagen meeting? So it would have been uh, basically 10 years ago. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So 2009, December 2009, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that was your kind of, so you just kind of fell into climate, I guess. You've always cared about, or climate and the environment. You've always cared about enacting social change, but, you know, this was an opportunity that you, you took and, so let's let's kind of get to now. You know, I you you travel a lot. You you seem impressive, but I don't really know what you actually do. Um, so what what do you do with you know with regards to you know the environment and climate change and these things now? Yeah. So I mean, I stayed involved in these UN negotiations, and the way they work is they basically have a yearly major summit 
usually every November or December. Mm-hmm. Um, where they like gather for two weeks and try to advance negotiations and make some agreements on things. And then they also have smaller summits in between to where it's mostly like negotiators and not politicians that are around trying to advance again the negotiations. Mm-hmm. So I work for a group called the Climate Action Network International. Um, okay. And what I'm currently doing for them is I work on there. So at these negotiations, we publish a daily newsletter um, that basically sets out our reactions and our positions to the negotiations. Yep. So I, I pull that together. So I, we have working groups and they follow different sectors of the negotiations, different streams. And so I coordinate these groups to put together their thoughts on the day or, and, or their positions or whatever they want to communicate. And then they write it up, send it in, and I edit, lay out, and send to printer every night. Um, kind of the summary it's, it's, from the past day of every what? There must be lots of different stakeholders. You have to get all of their kind of no I, I mean it's kind of like what's most pressing and again some of it is reactions if we don't like something or if we really like something and we want to continue to encourage it mm-hmm. some of it is are things that we know are going to be discussed and we want to kind of start to shape the narrative um so it's a negotiation lobbying tool um which fits right in with my interests yeah and it's also really cool because it lets me stay kind of keep a toe in all the different negotiating streams because i have to know a little bit of what's going on everywhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like I stayed in these negotiations since Copenhagen. So for 10 years, oh, um, wow. the one in Poland was my 10th conference. Yeah. Um, I keep joking that it's time to retire, but I keep getting pulled <laughs> back. Yeah. I've already pretty much committed to going to the one this year. So yeah. And, and through that role, I've had like through those 10 years, I've had varying roles in it. So like I said, I started with the organization called the International Federal Federation of Liberal and Radical Youth, um, which is more of a policy kind of role. So after Copenhagen, I went to Cancun. um, And part of actually, that's where I really got dragged into climate change Mm -hmm. um, and and into this UN process. It was much smaller and um, much more easy to engage. So I got involved, basically, there's these different constituencies that represent different... um, non-governmental role so there's youth there's farmers there's there's business there's academics um all kind of separate there's indigenous peoples women's all kind of separate into different small groups that the un can engage with um and so i got involved with the youth group at that point and we basically our focus was to make sure that young people were being considered in negotiations and in the text um, so some of it like capacity building and things like that fit really well into making sure that youth are considered and engaged. And uh, would you and say I, that they do a good job? Because when I think of youth engagement at, you know, at the government of Canada level, it seems yeah. quite like token, right? Like, oh, we have like 20 people we talk to about some issues sometimes, but it's not actually taken. It doesn't seem like it's actually valued highly. I, yeah, I mean, I think at the UN, they often have the same access as, say, we do at Climate Action Network now from the like environmental NGO, or as 
businesses. I mean, it kind of is what you make it. Um, mm -hmm. So some years, I think the challenge with youth is obviously the leadership changes fairly frequently. And so some yeah. years you can be very successful and some years it's more of the work is just trying to keep it together in one piece <laughs> rather than actually engaging. Yeah. Um, so in Cancun, actually, we were very, we were very active and influential. Like I remember I, I sat down with the minister for Ireland, the minister for France, um, all trying to make sure that the word youth and young people stayed in the text. Yeah. Um, at one point there was some negotiating text that came out that had eliminated it. And so that was kind of our focus. And we actually succeeded in keeping it in that negotiating text for that year. Well, that's impressive. Yeah. I... It's amazing how much access you can get, right? Like, yeah, I'm just a kid from Canada at that point. Like, I think I was like 23, 22. Yeah. And I'm sitting down with ministers from all over the world and heads of state and, um, talking to them about this word and this document that is going to be signed by everyone. Right. It's, it's, it's a little bit surreal at times to be honest. Yeah. And so before we get further into the climate stuff, you know, I want to kind of ask your opinion because you've been involved in student politics and in this and, in you know, interested in city council and all these things. How do you feel about, let's call it the youth of today? Because I, I kind of have seen and believe what, what you just said that, if you're really passionate and you really care, you can get access as a young person and you can make a difference. And yet I hear so many people, my friends, my peers and in the media that are young and just kind of throw up their hands and say, well, you know, there's nothing we can do. They still feel like they're the kids at the table uh, rather than knowing that, you know, my experience even as, you know, an engineering student leader, if I presented myself professionally and and if I treated myself as if I had something worth valuing, then I was treated that way. But it's not the sentiment I see across the world. Yeah, I mean, one, I think the youth of today, um, I think our generation in some ways is actually very engaged and it's, quite inspiring at times um mm -hmm. again i'm i'm fully immersed in the climate change world so my yeah. my example for that would be from the climate change world these climate strikes that are happening every friday now um all over the world and i don't know if you saw pictures from two weeks ago when it was supposed to be like a major one no um, i didn't and you had like literally hundreds of thousands of kids students mainly like i would say high school and university students, but some younger, yeah. going out on the street and calling for action on climate change. I think the count around the world was something like definitely over a million people, a million students out on the streets. Mm -hmm. That included, I think, about two or 300 here in Waterloo. Um, yeah. I was actually in Sao Paulo, and we I attended the one down there. Um, okay. But Montreal had a huge, huge turnout. And then you're talking about countries in like Belgium had like hundreds of thousands of people. So yeah, it's uh, I think it's pretty inspirational in terms of access though. And like influence, I think it depends on what we're talking about. I think there are places where you can make a difference as a, as a younger person, as a 
I think the university was one of those places where if you engaged the right person and had the right approach, you could make changes. Mm-hmm. But things like climate change, I think, is where we're seeing people and major issues being frustrated. Um, there's there's money involved that we don't have access to yeah. and political influence and decisions that are being taken not for the best interest, but for the short-term interest of the political parties or the financial sector or whatever it is. But um, And I think that's... that's the game where, is more complex getting... than, than we might think. Yeah, and, and it's not just about sitting down sometimes. It, there's so much more behind the scenes. Um, I mean, I think the uh, the Green New Deal was voted on in the Sen- U.S. Senate yesterday or the day before. And the numbers, like the people who voted against it, there was a report on how much money they had received from the oil industry. And I think it averaged over a million dollars per senator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. So like, and th- and when you start reading that, it's easy to get frustrated and it's easier to say, well, how do we make change, right? Yeah, that's fair. So diving back into climate then, um, you know, you've been working on this for, for 10 years. Um, I'm interested to kind of hear your thoughts on where we are now in this progress, right? We signed the Paris climate deal, uh, you know, but the U.S. withdrew, withdrew. And everywhere I read that we're not actually going to hit any of the targets, at least in Canada and many other countries. Yeah, I mean, so let me start with the U.S. Um, so, yeah, they withdrew from the from the Paris Agreement. Technically, they actually haven't withdrawn. They've announced they will withdraw. Yeah. They have to wait another year to do so. But as a reaction to the U.S. withdrawal, a lot of states and institutions and cities stepped up their commitment and actually i think the u.s is more on target now than they were before they announced their withdrawal mm-hmm. so other actors and i think this is a, a really important part of it is that it's not just about national states if anything national states can make all these big commitments and can lead and and provide funding for it but a lot of the actual emissions come down to more local levels cities and provinces or states or whatever jurisdictions yeah can do a lot. Uh, and um, I think we're starting to see a lot more of that recognition, uh, both in terms of people working on climate change, targeting those. Um, I don't know if you've seen uh, recently in Canada, there's been, I think we're up to four or five cities that have declared climate emergencies. And no, I didn't know that. Either. I, there's definitely a lot more in the pipeline. Um and what that means still hasn't been made very clear. I think that's one of the things we're working on is, okay, so you think it's a climate emergency. What does that actually mean for your day-to-day actions? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Canada is horrible. Canada's so off target that I just don't even want to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this government has done a fairly decent job of greenwashing itself uh, with the rhetoric that they speak. That's not surprising to me. But but I think we're, out of all 10 years I've been involved in this, I've never felt more optimistic than now. Yeah. Now, that's counterbalanced by the fact that 10 years ago, it would have been much better to do the actions we're doing now. 
And yeah. it's one of those where like the longer we wait, the harder it gets, the more effort we're going to put, the more money we're going to have to spend. Yeah. But climate change is also not a black and white issue. It's not an on and off, right? It's not we solve it or we don't. Mm -hmm. It's a scale. So any action we do is good. Anything yeah. we do is reducing the impact of climate change. Well, and so I like, want to jump in and talk about this kind of doomsdaying that you hear a lot around climate change, right? So my mm -hmm. first experience was an inconvenient truth, which I think many's were. And Al Gore, I don't remember what the year was then, but it was like very much there's a tipping point. And then yeah. every few years, we don't solve it by then. And we hear about the next tipping point. And it seems so one, quite fatalistic and two, unrealistic, that there's some year in the future where we'll never be able to recover from. And that messaging is pervasive, in my opinion, but it just seems inaccurate based on my little amount of knowledge. Um, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts on kind of that messaging that we hear so often. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a huge debate within the climate change communication world as whether we go with optimism and hope or whether we go with fatalism and, you know, this tragedy and this end of the world type of narrative. Yeah. Um, I mean, part of the evolution of that narrative is also an evolution of science. There are still certain things that we are uncertain about. Um, yeah. And we're learning more and more. And it's why, like, even though the science of climate change is established, it's happening. We know roughly a timeline. We still mm -hmm. need to continue to do science on this because the rates of melting for, for the poles are still kind of varying um we know there'll be some feedback effects for example from permafrost melting and methane being released but we're not a hundred percent sure on any on some of these yeah and so as we learn more we adjust those models um i think probably on like several times a year i read an article in nature or another journal that kind of discovers something new within the big scope of climate change yeah. that changes sort of a, our outlook. Um, and it's also one of those of like, what do you find acceptable? What is doomsday, right? Like, yeah. So doomsday for some places in the world is already almost locked in. Yeah. So right now we're basically locked in at one degree. We're getting pretty close to being locked in at 1.5 degrees and we're on target if we didn't do anything additionally to what we're doing right now, we're on target for like, I think over three degrees. Mm -hmm. And for some island states and some other parts of the world, like two degrees is basically you cannot longer live where you live. Yeah. That's doomsday to them, right? Yeah. I think in Canada, we're pretty privileged in that our doomsday would come much later Last. directly. But yeah. that is not taking into account a lot of the impacts that will be felt i mean that's you fair. know as as things happen all over the world we're in such an interconnected world that we get our food from all over the world yeah. you know we get so these things will impact us i mean you've seen the immigration chaos around the world from the syrian conflict now imagine like a scale much larger than that of people moving yeah and the chaos that that will cause, right? Like some of the places that are most impacted are also some of the places that are most populated. Um, yeah. And like they will become uninhabitable. 
and we're talking about places that have millions of people. Yeah, and millions I under- of people. I guess I'll kind of bring in, you know, my I don't I'm not a skeptic about climate change happening, right? But I guess yeah. I'm kind of uh skeptical about I obviously know these are massive impacts that we will have to deal with. Um but I'm I like I believe we will be able to and I also think that the the earth has gone through changes in landscape at this scale before, just not within our, you know, recorded like the the last 5000 years 10000 years let's say where it's yeah. it's a, impacted such a massive population but the yeah sure we're accelerating it but the idea that we would have never had to deal with certain plots certain countries even you know being underwater or or an earthquake you know breaking off california or whatever the idea that we'll we i i'm i'm convinced we would have had to deal with some of this anyway so maybe we're dealing with it sooner but these are these are the complex issues of the future of humanity on earth regardless that's kind of my mindset what what like how do you feel about some something like that i mean so one we're definitely seeing changes much faster than we have seen historically okay i mean if you look at so we have we don't have recorded history for that far back mm-hmm. but thanks to things like ice cores and other samples, we can actually look pretty far back in terms of getting an understanding of climate and the major patterns. Um, And when you look at those patterns, the slope at which our CO2 concentration is growing is unparalleled. And the temperature variations are getting up to pretty, pretty close to not seeing them before yeah um and like we've we've basically lived in the um in a very stable period yeah of climate in the holocene uh and so i think it's one of those where like the earth will adapt and the earth will eventually probably balance itself but what will that actually mean to us right and so i just kind of bet on human innovation right like i mean i guess that's you know maybe i'm just kicking the can down the road but i believe that at some point we will be able to handle this right like and i guess uh you know maybe some people don't believe that or we need to start handling it now um but i think potentially there's technological solutions that we will come up with or and like we will be able to manage when it's actually actually needed yeah, I mean, I, I would say we, one, definitely need to start handling it now. Yes. Um, yeah. And, I mean, part of that is technological solutions, right? If we want to keep the same lifestyle we have right now, part of, a large part of it is technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, things like electric cars and things like that are technology, right? Yeah. That, are, that will change our emission profile. But the other thing is, what does that look like? What does technology adapting us to that look like? And mm-hmm. what is, what are the impacts or the consequences between now and then, right? Like, Yeah, and I guess it always, it seems to always disproportionately affect, you know, poorer countries and things like that. Because the US, Canada, some of the European countries, they can develop and purchase and, and use te- these technologies. Um, but in the meantime, some islands are sinking 
Yeah, and I mean, islands are sinking. Countries are being are beginning to be too hot to live in. Yeah, I don't know how much you pay attention to news in Australia, but they're getting pretty ridiculous with their heat. Mm. Um, it's getting so bad that the weather um, station in Australia actually had to add a new color to their map <laughs> to signify a new level of heat. Yeah, um, and so I think it's one of those where. Yes, the world will definitely still be around. What it will look like, who knows? Humanity might still be around. Like I, I'm not saying this is an extinction level event. Some people are. Right. I think and it's that, I, that's hard to judge. But I will say that if we were to stay on the track we are right now, I think it would be safe to say that millions, if not billions, of people would, at the very least, suffer if not die due to yeah. climate change impacts. And so I think it's one of those, is that acceptable or not? It's it's a, it's a the question we're basically, I think we're asking ourselves. Yeah. But I don't think we're asking it enough. I think when we're talking about climate change, it's so easy to clean it up and not actually think about the human impacts. Um, mm -hmm. And especially, again, like you said, in, in North America and Europe and the developed countries where we can kind of pay our way out of it or protect ourselves a lot more. Yeah. But even but, here, I mean, things like more expensive food and things like that will exacerbate our poverty levels unless we do something about it. Yeah. But I think I like I believe that the kind of doomsdaying mentality saying that the people who and I think I mean, we don't need to get into the larger problem with the media generally, but those are the messages that I see spread the most. And I think that's not going to instill in the individual a desire or, or a need to make a difference, right? If they're being told that we're all going to die if we don't hit a target within two years that everyone agrees we can't hit anyways, they're not going to change their behavior. Um, and that's kind of what is being spread. It's those or the climate deniers, all right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's such a thing as crying wolf too often. And that's really, I think that defines my opinion of what I've, you know, followed since An Inconvenient Truth with climate change, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, honestly, there's been a bit of a shift in the last couple of years towards a more hopeful narrative, a narrative mm -hmm. of, yes, we can do something about it if we do these things. Yeah. I think the other challenge is, honestly, we've had a narrative of, people need to do something about it. You need to recycle. You need to do your part. But people acting is actually a very small part of what we need. Yeah. A lot of emissions are big corporate emissions, big system-wide emissions. Yeah. And to change those, it's not going to take me changing my behavior or you changing your behavior. You know, anyone listening, changing their behavior, it's going to take governments to really make those changes. When see, this is where I need to start. This is where I want to kind of get into it a bit because, uh, you know, my, my political opinions have changed quite a bit in the last couple of years. And so I, I don't believe in government having a role for many of these things, right? And I think I agree that corporations, you know, what is it? The top 100, the, like, the, the top 100 polluting corporations in the world produce 80% of the emissions. I don't know if that's the exact stat, but it's something like quite over the top, right? Um, I think much more likely getting people to understand and put pressure on those corporations and their bottom line is a much more effective way than trying to get governments to force them, right? And I think 
that is the type of process that would actually make change, um, especially because of just the corrupt the corrupt way that these companies and the governments work together often, right? Um, so it's trying to get the message to the individual, not that they need to change their behavior, but they need to look at their behavior and try and change it or try and influence the corporation's behavior. So it's not like recycle more or, uh, you know, shower, take less showers, but it is, you know, look at the cars, look at the meat you're eating and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think it it honestly requires both. It's kind of the carrot and the stick approach. Yeah. Um, where I think, I think consumers can make changes and we've seen it, I think, things like straws and that kind of thing was a consumer backlash and has forced some changes. Yeah. Um, but in other cases, there's a very calculated risk towards profit. I mean, corporations are all about short-term profit. What What's your profit next quarter and, kind and of thing? That is much more impacted by user behavior and, and, and client behavior than it is by government threats, I think. Especially yes, if you're but, talking about globally, right? Every government has their own rules. Every country has their own rules. So they don't like the way it's working in Canada. Canada's being too strict. Oh, they'll move to another country that's more lax. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is why, like, one of the things we're looking at is a world approach to these kind of things, right? Um, I mean, we there's been talk for a little while now about basically tariffs on products from countries that aren't ha that don't have stringent um carbon programs or that kind of thing carbon reduction programs that kind of thing okay. um so I, th I think there's mechanisms where you could you could look at to address some of the issues about the globalization of corporations and that kind of thing mm -hmm. um i mean we already have it with taxes and stuff like that right you have google setting up office in ireland so they can avoid taxes yeah in other places um and that i think shows exactly why we need government and not just people to oversee corporations because corporations will do everything possible to make that profit and so i think you need right. both i think you need government and i mean sometimes government isn't also just about regulation and punishment it's also about incentive uh, one of the things I hear often from business people is, yes, we're willing to to do our part on climate change, but what we need is reg like we need certainty. We need to know what these regulations are going to look like. We need to know what we're going to work towards because we're not going to invest a hundred million dollars on this new project if it's going to change tomorrow. And that's one of the struggles right now, I think, with the political will that comes and goes as governments change, yeah. is that corporations are left kind of in the lurch, right? I mean, right. And so don't you think then if there wasn't this idea of the government regulating, but there was still this global pressure from people that there would be less uncertainty, right? Because they would just know that they have to do something that the, that the, that people want this to change, right? And if if GM is is saying that they're going to switch to all electric, but the but Ford won't, then Ford's going to lose out because that's the way the clients are that that the you know user base is is shifting, but right now they're both waiting to see because they want to make sure their project would meet regulations, um, right? So it's like the regulations provide the the idea that there could be or will be regulations provide more uncertainty. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, not traditionally. Traditionally, regulations actually provide quite a bit of certainty. It seems to be climate change where they're really, and there's a new era of like governments kind of ideologically fighting over climate change, yeah. even though there's nothing really to fight about. Um, I think it's, it's really playing up on this. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I will say is that I think it's actually really hard to get consumers to buy into something sometimes. Um, I mean, seatbelts are a really interesting example. Yeah. Like seatbelts save lives. Like, you know, it's been scientifically proven, you have a much better chance of surviving crash. But even today, now that we're used to it and you ask people why they wear a seatbelt and it's not about safety, it's because it's illegal if you don't. Right. Uh, Right. A surprising (laughs) number of your answers are about that. And it wasn't until it was illegal that the uptake of seatbelts really came in. When they were just there, they were not often used right and i mean this would and that's get an into even more quite... personal example right this would like get... you, it's literally your life that you're taking into your hands and yeah climate change is even harder in terms of you don't necessarily see the impact on you daily yeah this would get into quite the like seatbelts are quite the interesting example for where i think we'd get into an ideological debate um because i think the fact that people need it to be illegal to do what's in their own self-interest is absurd but i think that the state allows that right people you know people are now delegating their own well-being and their own decision making to the state and i think that kind of perpetuates itself right you know people to for people to not need to understand why seatbelts are good is taking you know is is making them not need to think about their own well-being, not need to be rational and intelligent, which I think is a problem. Um, but I, but I think that would get into quite the uh, sidetrack of our ideological differences. I think. Um, so I, I want to kind of shift to, like, you know, we talked about electric cars, and so you know, obviously Tesla made huge impacts and huge, uh, huge progress for electric cars. And really changed the world, uh, and because none of the other companies were going to do it, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't profitable, um, and they didn't want to spend the time developing the technology. But far more than any government did or could, in my opinion, Elon Musk and Tesla came in and showed it could be. I mean, they're not exactly profitable yet, but showed that there was merit, and and they used a capitalist approach to make these advances, and they made people want what they could provide. And, and sure, they needed to make it a better product in, in many senses, but I believe that is the way to actually make the, these bigger changes longer term. Yeah, again, I think it works in some, ish, some areas and it doesn't in others. I think not everything will be profitable or can be profitable. And I think you need the state for that when it can't be or won't be profitable, but it's still necessary. Um, and even electric cars, I mean especially in a lot of like the developing the developed world market, they've gotten a lot of subsidies um, to help boost that market. Um, I mean, I think in Ontario, it was like $5,000 off electric cars that you get back from the government. And I mean, Um, I think that's absurd, but. But I mean, (laughs) do you know how much money oil companies get for subsidies? Well, I think that's also absurd, right? Like the reality is, (laughs) that we live in a world where most corporations are getting subsidized 
Which, yeah. yeah, I agree with you. It's it's absurd, especially when these corporations are making a profit. We're right. basically just topping off, off their profit with our money, and it's ridiculous. Yeah, but um, I think that is a, what the state has done perpetually, right? Like, I think that is what they do more than anything else. But I think it's it's happened since the beginning of of industrialization and of the economic world we live in. And I... Listen, I'm all for getting rid of subsidies. I'm yeah. all for it. Okay. But, even even climate-related ones? I mean, I think, honestly, at this moment, if we were in a subsidy-free world, a majority of the climate-friendly options would actually win out. You're right, and, and I, I completely agree with that. And so, yeah, the fact that we provide huge subsidies for oil exploration and refinery and and car manufacturing i mean how much money have we paid to car companies to keep them in this country and to bail them out and to do all these things and yet often they report profits right i mean it's it's ridiculous technology companies all of these places we give subsidies in many different ways yeah um and yet they are making huge profits and then i mean besides subsidies the tax loopholes that are out there when you look at how many, how much some of these companies pay in taxes, it's it's absurdly low. Like, yeah. And so, don't so, you think that, or I think that a better approach, rather than you know saying we need to add subsidies to the green initiatives and we need to kind of like bring them up to par, we should rather you know kind of take away from the the people who are. Not that I think they're necessarily bad actors, but let's call them the bad actors when it comes to climate change or other things, right? They're kind of in in they're ingrained by our our tax dollars and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of people in the climate world would agree in terms of getting rid of these subsidies. Uh, you'll find one of the slogans in the climate world is "system change, not climate change," and I think yeah. one of the biggest parts of the system change would be that corporate subsidy approach that we have. But that's definitely Um, not something that I've ever heard from the the climate arguments. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely not something that's covered in the media often. I mean, climate change coverage in the media is often about the science Mm -hmm. or the politics of like regulation and that kind of thing. but climate change touches on so many issues. It touched like you can you can work on climate change pretty much through any lens. Yeah. And so there are, I mean, it, it's touching on gender. It's touching on our economic system. It's touching on pretty much anything. So if you start digging into some of these, you'll realize that people in climate change have opinions about almost everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're people, right? So they 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 have to have opinions on everything. But like worked out opinions in relation to climate change as well, right? Yeah. Um, Do you think that the taking an approach of, let's say, trying to end these corporate subsidies um, would actually be tougher than the the fight is now? Because that like those people would fight back even harder. They're trying to you know work with the climate change people so they can get advantage and take take advantage of new subsidies, green subsidies, climate subsidies. So do you think it would actually just be? a harder battle yeah i mean i think because then i mean you're taking on even corporations that 
I'd consider to be more allies right now, right? Like, I mean, a lot of, for example, corporations are trying to step up. Uh, there's um, a group called the 100% RE uh, group that is basically committed to using 100% renewable energy in their corporations. Yeah. Um, so companies like Mars, like Google, IKEA, all of those have joined those that group, um, which is a pretty big step. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially Google. I mean, Google's energy output is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and but you'd be fighting against them as well to get rid of the subsidies, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, all of them receive subsidies. <clears throat> but there, I mean, there are some groups. Um, I think I mentioned earlier Oil Change International uh, when I was talking about how much money the U.S. senators that voted against the Green New Deal get. Yeah, uh, they're basically focused on the money, um, and like again, they're focused on subsidies towards uh, oil companies. But their goal is to get rid of that of the subsidies. Mm. Um, but it is a, I think, a tougher slog than trying to get some of the more with some regulations and things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the first step would honestly be to get money out of politics, get corporate money out of politics, and that would be a huge first step. Or at least make it very, very, very visible. Uh, yeah, I mean, even visible, though, like, yes, you know, this person's being paid a million dollars for the oil companies, but it still doesn't mean you can counteract that million dollars, right? It still yeah. means that when they go but, to get reelected, they need that million dollars. Yeah, but you still can... Like the more information someone has, they have to. We, I have to trust that they'll make the decision that's best for them and best for you know their values, regardless of how much uh, advertising is spewed at their face. Yeah, I mean, uh, the West Wing, which is one of my favorite shows. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you've watched it. I have not. Uh, but there's a Republican senator who's running for president, Senator Vidic, and. He goes in one of the scenes, he goes to a fundraiser, shakes hands, gets their money and stuff. And uh, when he's walking away from it, um, I can't remember what brings on this quote, but he basically says, if you can't drink their booze, eat their food, take their money and then vote against them, you shouldn't be in this business. (laughs) And and that, that would be an ideal politician. But I think too many politicians aren't like that. Yeah. Um, And also... Sometimes it's a, like when you're a politician that is more worried about getting reelected, and I think a lot of them are. Yeah. You need money to get reelected. Right. It's uh, that simple. As someone who ran for for a political office now, yeah, money is important, um, and money can be hard to get. Okay. And let's so let's jump you, into that for a bit then. Yeah. yeah. Tell tell me about your experience running for for council and and yeah let's start with the money aspect of it. I mean, money for city council is especially hard uh, because you don't get like anyone that donates doesn't get uh, a tax deduction like you do for federal or provincial. Really? Yeah. Um, in some cities, they've the cities have incorporated some sort of of like incentive. Mm-hmm. but not in kitchener waterloo yeah um i think toronto actually might have it i don't but don't quote me on that mm-hmm. uh for sure but um so yeah so that's a challenge in itself you don't get to say oh you're only actually donating 50 percent of that because you'll get that back eventually um mm-hmm. it's also so much 
more low key. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, you almost need more money because you don't have a party spending money on your behalf. So, you know, provincial or federal, as a candidate, as a local candidate, you're campaigning out there and you're spending your money. Um, but the party's also having those central ads and spending money on on the label you're associated with, right? It's also, but less, you can spend much less money uh, as well. So I think the limit for my race was something like, I want to say eleven or twelve thousand um, dollars, somewhere in between there. Okay. And whereas a, I think the limit for a federal or provincial at a local level is like a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, something like that. So it's much less. I mean, I'm my area was much smaller than one of those ridings. I think it may be somewhat similar proportionally. I think the mayors can spend up to close to a hundred thousand dollars as well. Um, but I, I mean, I, I quite enjoyed the experience. I enjoyed talking to people and talking about issues. Obviously, I have a lot of opinions. Yeah. Um, and so sharing those and and seeing people be receptive to them. But it was also very frustrating um, in the level of engagement you see. And honestly, the level of frustration and resignation people have, a lot of people were expressed the idea of why why bother? Like, it doesn't make a difference. And so that's um, where I really want to jump in because, you know, we, we switched to this idea of the politics around the money in politics. And that's what you hear, obviously, about the states a lot. There's too much money. And so it's it's kind of been proven that the more money you spend, the more likely you'll win. And that's just it. Um, and I understand that's the current state of the world and it's unfortunate. But I want to push back that the reason that's the current state is because people are so unengaged and apathetic. So it's just kind of how their mind is swayed. Um, and I think that's just kind of identifies a, a full underlying problem with politics. But if you had people actually engaged and informed, not even informed, engaged in knowing what they actually care about, they can kind of cursorily look at what's going on and make, an, make a decision that's in their best interest rather than being so easily swayed because they don't really know what what they care about or why they should care at all so the idea that you know i don't think that i would be swayed by a million dollars telling me to vote for justin trudeau in the next election because there's no chance i would um and so i don't think that no matter how much money he would have it's not going to change my vote because i disagree on core things and so this idea that other people can be so hugely influenced I think that's a problem more than the money itself. Yeah, I mean, like, do you think if you had a million dollars for your council, you would have been for your council run, you would have, you know, I mean, you may have been able to win, but is it because people care all of a sudden or just because they're being inundated and kind of like mechanically going to vote? So I think, I mean, part of it is definitely reaching people is hard so i yeah. mean i door knocked right and i think if i'm correct my hit rate for people being home was something like 40 percent. okay and then my hit rate for people actually substantially engaging when they were home was something like 30 percent of those people so it's pretty low the number of people that will engage with you and i think yeah. that's probably reflected in the voter turnout i think voter turnout for my area was something like 20 percent yep 
Um, so I think, I mean, part of the money, the reason you need money is to try to get through that, try to reach people through all the competing messages of people trying to sell you things and all that kind of thing, right? Yeah. The other thing about money is it's kind of escalated. And I think we see this in the U.S. system a lot where every election, both party parties spend more and more money. And so if one party spends a billion dollars, the other party has to spend a billion dollars. Yeah. It just continues to escalate and grow because there's no limits. Like in Canada, we have spending limits, right? Yeah. Um, and so that I think is, is helpful to some extent. Um, but I, I really think people are frustrated with the political system. People believe their energy and efforts are better spent in other places. Partly because I think too many politicians lie about what they promise to do and then don't carry through on it. Mm-hmm. Also, people aren't engaged on a regular basis. They, they see the election, that's where they're engaged and they get, become very cynical. Oh, you come to me every four years for my vote, right? Yeah. Uh, like a lot of the people I engaged with didn't know who their city councilor was. Um, didn't even really know what city council, what the role of city council was. Yeah. Um, the amount of emails and questions I got to issues completely unrelated to to city council. Um, and so isn't high. isn't that a much more important? It's a much again. It's similar to let's say the um, getting rid of the subsidies. But to me, that is the much more important thing to look at and try and tackle than the idea that there's too much money in politics or that money makes a big difference. Because I think. Yeah. I mean, they're two. I think they're two different issues. They're related, and I think you need to tackle both of them. I think one um, is largely predicated on the other, though. I th- I think one would help to negate the other. Yeah. I I think. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> it's also I think one of those like chicken or the egg, which came first. I don't I don't know which problem caused the other. I suspect they both kind of parallel spiraled into problems and they feed off each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think money, and especially when we're talking about money, we're talking about corporate money and money that influences opinion yeah. um, leads to promises being broken and leads to voter cynicism. But I think also the lack of engagement from voters allows politicians to do a lot more of that. If they don't feel pushback and feedback, then it's much easier to break your promise or to, you know, start handing out sweet deals to corporations and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, and I, I mean, I think trying to get voter engagement and citizen, really, it's, it's about getting citizen engagement because it's yeah. not just about every four years getting them to vote, right? It's about no. them being involved every day. Yeah, um, and generally. And, and I mean, there's a lot of challenges. People are genuinely busy. I mean, people have families, people have jobs. I think we continue to live in a world where every day, I think the middle class is slowly getting chipped away at. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you need to work longer. I mean, we, I think we're familiar with our generation where the side hustle is a thing. So people have day jobs and then they have their thing to try to top up their income. Um Mm-hmm. especially you know if someone's trying to buy a house or something ridiculous um and so where do you find the time to be politically engaged and i find that even with a lot of my friends um i'm 
hyper engaged politically engaged right like yeah. i i'm not just politically engaged in canada i'm politically engaged in like europe brazil like i follow news pretty much all over the world yeah um and but a lot of friends who i would consider to be you know supremely intelligent and and probably more engaged than your average person are still not engaged enough to really follow what's going on every day in politics. Um, and and it, it is a challenge. It's a challenge of, of how busy they are, but it's also, I think, and this is, this is where I think some of my friends would <laughs> disagree with me and take it personally, but um, it's a challenge of personal priorities, right? You, you do have to prioritize it. Right. I um, think people don't do a good enough job of prioritizing politics and realizing how important it is. But I also think, again, part of the problem is politics does too many things now, right? If politics did 10 things and you kind of needed to know what the government was up to in 10 areas, sure. But when they do 100 things and you're supposedly supposed to track all of this, it is exhausting. It is hard to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure that would be my primary issue with it it's a complex <laughs> world and we need yeah. the government to be a complex institution um and i think it's always been a complex institution i think we know more about some of the complexities i think one of the other things is we've kind of demystified government to an extreme we now think anyone can run the government and i mean i i guess they can but not well um and so we continue to elect people who are for lack of better phrase, dumber and dumber. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I think it, it really is also a feeling of powerlessness and of, of unengagement. Like, why do you pay? Why do you read something if you can't do anything about it? Or like, why engage when there's no real value for it? Right? Like, no politician is going to come ask your opinion. There's no way for you to really express your opinion other than elections. And people do sort of tune in for elections a little bit, right? As much as they feel they can. Yeah. And um, so how do you stay engaged and hopeful? Like you and I live in the same world as all of our peers, yet we're the odd ones out. I think hopeful might be a stretch. Okay. <laughs> hopeful on some issues. Um, I mean, it's, it's honestly, it's always, I've always been like this. It's always been a personal interest to me to know what's going on around the world um, and at home in politics. I mean, I was involved in my first political campaign Officially, I think I was like 16 in my first political campaign that I went to volunteer, but I've grown up around politics. And so I've, it's kind of in my blood, I guess. I can't explain it any other way. Okay. Um, You're just wired but, to, to care. Do you think the only people left at this point are the ones who are wired and everyone else has just been beaten down and beaten down by the way it works? <clears throat> um, I'm not sure I'd. I'd say only people, but a large proportion of them. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's also, I think, a, like I'm, I think on the extreme where I'm, I follow a lot of things. Um, there are people who are passionate about a single issue and follow that very strongly. Mm -hmm. um, like climate change is what I talk about most often, but I could talk about a lot of other issues um, at the drop of a bucket. But um, I think, yeah, governments are just not doing a good job. Even, again, going back to my experience running for city council, I think the city of Kitchener has done a horrible job on, on that election, on promoting mm -hmm. the election, on running the election. Um, 
like I saw very little promotion from the city of Kitchener about the election going on. Yeah. Um, on polling day, you literally had people living beside a school that was a polling location that had to go to a, a school a kilometer away. And that's just some bad planning right there. Yeah. Um, but and then I think I'd also like to throw in the media under the bus on this. Oh, um, that's, yep. I think the record published a couple of articles about the mayoral race, which was not at all interesting. <laughs> like Barry was not going to be beaten. He had no real contenders. He crushed that election. It wasn't even a question. No one, no one doubted him winning, but mm -hmm. yet they wrote articles on that and didn't write articles about some of the more interesting ward elections. Um, I think the only people that covered the election were like the, the smaller free local papers that yep. get delivered, um, like the Kitchener Post and the Waterloo Chronicle, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but the paper of record for a region did a shitty, shitty job. I, I would say criminally irresponsible job covering <laughs> the municipal election. Like I, I could not believe how little attention they paid to it. Yeah. I am even, I think like the CBC and I, I give them less blame because they're much smaller and they, their like actual coverage is very small of our region, mm -hmm. but like they did very little as well. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I was quite disappointed with the media coverage. And like if the media isn't covering it and if candidates don't have a lot of money and if the city's not promoting it, then how the fuck do people find out about these elections? Well, and so I would kind of, again, I don't know if I'm just playing devil's advocate, but I believe the media is still there to make money. They need to sell papers. If people don't care... Why should they write about it, right? If you're saying you can go to someone's face and only 30% of people you're talking to directly give a give a shit, why would this paper try and sell that? Yeah, and I work well with devil's advocates, so keep it up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'd say two things to that. One is that 30% of people that are interested are probably the 30% that read the newspaper. Let's face it, not 100% of our population reads All right, the newspaper. That's, that could be valid. The other thing is 100% they're trying to make money. That's why they don't cover it because they have very few local reporters now. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't want to throw out a percentage because I don't know. Uh, but a large portion of your newspaper isn't prepared locally. A large portion of your newspaper is prepared centrally. Um, so like, yeah, I mean, all your world news is, as you know, it's the same news in any other local paper around the world the country that is owned by the same media group. Yeah. Um, your sports is going to be the same pretty much everywhere, except for maybe a column on the Kitchener Rangers or the Kitchener Panthers. Yeah. Depending on summer or winter. Um, your entertainment's going to be the same. Your arts is largely going to be the same. You're going to have one or two local articles in each section, but like part of that making money is saving is cutting costs as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And the irony is on this meet while we're talking about media is that I think that's itself killing the newspaper industry. And again, it comes down to making profits. So what a lot of these newspaper corporations um, are doing is basically trying to squeeze out every penny before they close down. 
Yeah. And so the shittier the coverage gets, the less you want to read it, which means the let like eventually they'll close. Yeah. But well, while they're closing, they're trying to hit profits. Yeah. And I think that's just I, I believe it's first principles that we need to look at the people. What are they actually caring about? What are they actually doing? And like we need to pretend we're building from scratch. There's no politicians. There's no newspaper. There's just people living near each other. And yeah. you have to go and talk to them and see what they want to read about, what they want to vote about. And and really, I think that's I, I think we've gotten to that point where it's just so utterly disconnected. Um, and I and that's why you're seeing these populist movements, because it's just so utterly disconnected. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, the few newspapers that are managing to somewhat succeed are those that actually invest in substantial reporting yeah um and like i i completely agree that like not every newspaper can be the new york times and do all this amazing reporting and visual reporting i don't know how frequently you visit their website or read their stuff but some of their visual stuff is just stunning like Mm. they have really taken a hold of delivering news in our digital age they've done brilliantly I mean, The Guardian does a great job also of some of the coverage. Um, and I think that looks very differently locally. And I'm not sure anyone's doing it that well locally, not that I'm aware of. But I'm sure with the thousands of local papers around the world, millions of local papers around the world, someone must be doing it right. Um, yeah. But from a, like a, just a major newspaper, I think those that are somewhat succeeding are because they are investing in more than just your your standard news story Mm -hmm. okay yeah that makes sense and i i i i would tend to agree um i want to jump back back to climate change because that's kind of your area of expertise and uh the area that i'm fascinated in as well because i want to kind of talk about your opinion of people like me Right. We we seem to have extremely different political views um, on most things. And yet, you know, you're still coming on here and talking to me about it. You're still you, um, you see, I, I don't know, I guess you see value in. I don't know if you're trying to change my mind or just like, why come on and talk to someone who some people would call a climate denier, even though I'm not. But I I don't think that, you know, the not to offend, but I don't necessarily think the work to try and convince governments and the Paris Climate Accord is the right approach to solving these problems. Yeah, I mean, I think you're not a climate denier. <laughs> I think that the difference is you think we should approach it, like the solution is comes from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. But you're not saying we shouldn't act on climate change. You're just saying it should be it should come from the consumer and the corporations rather than from government. Yeah. I'm saying that like we should act like generally, but not, we should act like, Oh my God, let's act. It's more consumers will act when they're, when they know they should. Yeah. I I mean, part of like a lot of my work is within the government world, but part of it, my Mm -hmm. work is also trying to move, trying to build that social movement to get, the consumer to act and to push both corporations and governments. Cause I, I mean, someone described government to me as the corporation that is supposed to be on your side. 
And I think that's actually quite an interesting way to look at it um, in this day and age. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, listen, I'll talk to cl- about climate change to anyone. anyone. <laughs> um, and I think it's it's important that we keep having those these conversations. I do think it's probably the most important issue we have in today's world. Yeah, I think um, because it's been around for a while now, and because it's so long term, it's easy to kind of ignore it. Because people it's are not... fatigued. It was catastrophic a decade ago, and we're still here. So why do I care? I think it's not just fatigue, but it's also like it's not acute. You know, like it's not that shooting that happened yesterday or that bank robbery that happened yesterday or that car crash. Yeah. Or that hockey game that happened yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's it's always happening and it's ongoing. And we hear like and you can kind of tell that because we get a bit of a resurgence of coverage every time there's a natural disaster. Yeah. Um, but I think we think... need to continue to have those conversations. Yeah. Do you think that the the previous like way that climate change had been talked about was trying to play off of that let's call it news cycle oh my god the world's gonna end like if we don't make all these targets within two years we'll we'll never survive it's like trying to make it acute even though it's not yeah that's probably part of it um i mean i, I don't think any of these people genuinely tried to deceive the population I think it, it's also how climate change has the understanding of it has evolved. Yeah. Um, like I think I think when people when you sit someone down and you explain climate change to them, they feel a panic, um, and they kind of react to it naturally in that sense. Um, okay. Either like in a panic or just an overwhelming sense, and so I think that was kind of like a almost a gut reaction to it. And I think now that we've had more time to think about messaging and communications and that kind of thing is when you start seeing a more hopeful narrative to it. Um, It's also kind of like the tide has changed a little bit, I think. I think if we haven't hit the tipping point, we're very close to hitting the tipping point on action. And so people are generally feeling more hopeful. I think it somewhat reflects the mood of the movement um, Mm -hmm. as well. I I mean, after Copenhagen, I think there was a lot a lot of genuine worry and um, anxiety and fear about what would happen. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think a lot of it does come from that reflection of, of what people in the movement are feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, all these articles and interviews are given by people. And yeah. so how they feel influences it, whether they're aware of it or not. Um, and, and so you think we're just kind of... I don't know the the we're maturing like this. If this is the biggest issue, the largest scale issue humanity's ever had to deal with, when we first started to realize it, humanity was like, "Oh shit," and they were very alarmist. But now it's like a more mature approach. Like, no, we've look at what we've accomplished. We can solve this. We just need to take this the right approach. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it was like oh shit from the people who understood it. And then there was very little action from the people that needed to act. Mm-hmm. And so there was frustration and this like doomsday scenario, I think built within a lot of people. Yeah. Um, 
And I mean, that's not to say there isn't a doomsday scenario narrative right now. I mean, I think uh, with the IPCC report that came out last November. What's um, IPCC again? The International Panel on Climate Change. So it's basically a collection of the world's experts uh, that put together a report Mm -hmm. every couple of years. Um, Like they have special reports in between, but they put out like a... Basically, uh, this is what we know about climate change summary report every four or five years um, that is like then treated as basically the Bible of our climate science knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, But they put out one on on 1.5 degrees this this fall. Yeah. uh, Basically saying, what does 1.5 degree versus two degree mean for the world in terms of impacts? what do we need to do to stay under 1.5 degrees? And so the narrative out of that came, basically we have 12 years to act. And I, that's a pretty like urgency Latin message. And that's Did a pretty common anything? narrative right now. Um, I mean, it's only been six, six months. months. So it's hard to say if it's changed anything. I, like I said, I do think it changed the narrative to a little bit more urgency again and a little bit. Uh, but I think it's more heavily on the urgency and less heavy on the doomsday part yeah. of it. Um, I think implicitly there's a doomsday messaging within the we have 12 years to act, mm-hmm. but it's less explicit than it was before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think people are seeing action. Like we said, I mean, these climate strikes are gaining momentum. I mean, a lot of governments are at the very least, talking about climate change and promising things, even if they're not being followed through. But that's more than what was being done 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, so I think there is just a generally more hopeful tone to things. Um, yeah. That being said, it's easier It's easier to be hopeful here than if I was leave it, living in Tuvalu or one of those low-lying islands. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But it's, I mean, they can't really do much about it one way or the other yeah all they can it, do is they're just is... their fate's gonna be their fate right yeah and, from I their mean, actually, they, from their that's point one of view of the great things about the un part of the negotiations is they have the same voice as any other country they may not have the yeah. same power but they have the same voice and at least at these they usually have a bit of a bigger role than you would afford them their political influence or size so Mm-hmm. And that's because they have the moral high ground, right? They are literally the people that are suffering because we are continuing to to um, to contribute to climate change with our emissions, right? Yeah, I mean, there is this is definitely uh, slightly facetious, but like, if we were less connected, if we were experiencing these same issues, but like, let's say a hundred years ago and this random island started to sink, it would just be the gods or something, right? Like, they wouldn't know what's causing it. They would just have to deal with it, right? Like, humans have had to move before. They've had to deal when it wasn't human change, climate change, human human caused climate change. They've had to deal and adapt. Like, do we think that there's less of an ability now or, like, there's some requirement because we're a bit more aware? But from their point of view, like, do you know where I'm going at? Like, they a hundred years ago wouldn't have known why their land is disappearing. It's just disappearing and they need to deal with that. Yeah. I I mean, (laughs) on that, actually, 
one of the first articles talking about climate change was actually about a hundred years ago. Uh, talking about, about human, how carbon human caused. Okay, yeah, two hundred years the... ago, two hundred, whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, so, I, I, I just think it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've kind of thought about this for a while now. Um, an article speculating that the emissions from these factories would actually cause greenhouse warming effect. Um, interesting. Was actually, I think, published about a hundred years ago. I don't yeah. remember the exact date, but I think that's that's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a couple things on it. One, I think. Um, the changes due to climate change, human-induced climate change, are much more rapid. Um, you're right. Humans have been adapting to change in short-term and long-term weather patterns for a, for a while. Um, not always well. No. <laughs> Huge populations have been wiped out thanks to climate, thanks to changes in the climate. Yeah. Um, but also, a lot of the changes have happened much more slowly. When you talk about when you talk to some of the indigenous populations who passed down a lot of these, a lot of their history and a lot of it relates to climate events and that kind of thing. Um, what a lot of what people are saying is we've never seen change this fast. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that's really the challenge. Um, and honestly, like once we hit 1.5 and once we hit two degrees, we've humans, what I would call modern humans, I've never yeah. seen this kind of change. And I'm not talking modern humans last 100 years. I'm talking modern humans last five, six, a thousand years type of thing, right? Like, yeah. Well, I guess my, my, and so, answer... and I think it's also so widespread. Yeah. Like, I mean, we've had, you know, volcanoes, Pompeii wiped out by a volcano. Yeah. That's so localized. I guess right? my We're response would be impacts everywhere. My response would be that. Yes, this is the fastest this has ever happened, but look at the rate of change of human civilization in the past 200 years, right? Like humanity has never spiked its population this quickly or industrialized or like the technological advances we've made in the last 200 years is is exponentially unparalleled, right? Like more so than climate change. And so like the idea that we couldn't solve this problem as quickly as we've solved other ones and as quickly as we've advanced, it, it just doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't fit logically to me. Because like look at the other things we've managed to do in such a short period of time that, that are more unparalleled, uh, you know, throughout history. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the speed of change of humanity, the speed of growth of humanity is actually a direct relation to the speed of change and growth of climate now. Right. We not grow on that quickly and that both scientifically, technologically, and from a population perspective, we wouldn't be having this huge problem of climate change and of emissions. Um, but I'd also say that, I mean, the, the humans, the, the human system, the earth system is so complex yeah that like the challenges we're facing are are just massive in number and some of these things are things we've dealt with on a daily basis but are just becoming things that we haven't been able to deal with i mean some of these hurricanes like we can protect just put all the protections we can and they will still do massive damage and they used to happen once every 10 years, once every 100 years, but now they're happening on a yearly basis. Yeah. Um, and like, 
I think there is a limit to technology at some point. I mean, the earth is a powerful force. I mean, we see it But if earthquakes. You can build all these buildings with great earthquake protection, but something always gets damaged, right? Yeah, but um, if our technology can cause these climate change issues and pump CO2 <laughs> and methane into the atmosphere, I'm convinced we can develop a technology to reverse that. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't think it's even just reversing. I think we can we have the technology. Actually, that is a great point. We currently have the knowledge, the technology, and the money to stop our emissions. Yeah, and and stop climate change right now, today, tomorrow. We could implement a great mobilization and stop our emissions fairly quickly. Um, but we're not. We don't have the willpower to do it. The political power, the social power, whatever you want to call it, we don't mm -hmm. have it right now. So you're right. I mean, technology and knowledge could solve this problem right now. So like it, to, that's why to me, these, you know, again, I know you're not a doomsday sayer, but even your the, the idea we have 12 years, right? You know, we have the means to solve this problem. So it's just kind of like cheerleaders for one side versus the other, it feels like. Um, and yeah, I don't I don't really know. I'm convinced that when it becomes clearly catastrophic and maybe that maybe we're trying to prevent it from hitting that point. But at some point, uh, you know, we will make the change and we will mobilize quickly when we actually need to. But again, I'm sitting in Canada. Yeah. So I'll, I'll say a couple of things on that. I mean, I think that just adds to the frustration of the people that know this, like we could act right now. We're choosing not to. Mm -hmm. Is basically the, the scenario, and I think it's like you said. It's easy sitting here saying, "Oh yeah, maybe we'll act when you know when we're forced to." But that that literally translates into people's lives being lost and people's lives being horribly changed and upheaval for like millions of people. Right? It, it's mm -hmm. a it's a question of it's so easy to talk about the impacts and it feels so clean, but in reality, it's a lot of suffering and pain for people. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's already happening, like I said, and, yeah. and, and we still don't necessarily act. I think the U S is a perfect example of that. I mean, how many natural disasters have they had in the last four or five years that have been much more severe than I think they would have normally been or would have expected to have been. And yet they are still like ostriches with their head in the sand, right? Yeah. Um, and even like I remember, I think there's a, and again, this this may have changed. This was a couple years ago. And uh, I don't remember if it was North Carolina or South Carolina, but a, a region in that, in that area actually banned uh, flood maps that forecast into the future because hmm. it was basically going to forecast that all all the like houses were going to be underwater. And so it's killing the property value. So rather than facing this, <laughs> facing this thing that in like 50 years, these houses weren't going to be there. They literally banned the science. Yeah. One, well, I mean, that that is like literally putting your hand under the sand and saying nothing bad is going to happen to us because I can't see it. Yeah. Well, and so Ayn Rand, who, you know, created objectivism, she said that uh, the, I, I won't, paraphrase it perfectly but 
Basically, that never before has humanity been so committed to the idea that the problems cannot be solved. So it's not this idea that, um, you know, we're working and trying to solve the problems, but like we're just so scared of everything that we're committing to the idea that we cannot solve these problems. So let's just not even look at them or deal with them. And I think that's a good example, but it, it kind of, to me, captures the, the mindset of humanity at large. Um, and that's why I, like, you know, I obviously disagree with a government banning flood maps, right? You should never, like, I, I'm against governments doing anything of that sort. Um, and I, I, I think it's about empowering the people to to know what's, what's going on and, and know what's right in, in, you know, from, from any, you know, perspective. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if it, if it's, uh, if it's that we don't think we can solve things or a fear of it. I think there's just so many competing interests. Like I, and I, it's, I think, it, I, think I, I agree. There's sorry to cut you off, but there's so much, there's a lot of big problems that we've never really had to think about or face before. And there are competing interests. And so it's just overwhelming, right? Because there are some people who pick the one. You picked climate change. And it's like, well, some people are very scared of nuclear war still or yeah. a artificial intelligence or, or. So there's all of these massive problems. Some people pick one. Some people have a toe in all. But some people are just like, nope, none of this matters to me. I'm, I'm not engaging. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure historically we've ever had a period where everyone engaged. Um, I do mm -hmm. think there was a period where more people possibly engaged. And I think people may be engaging in different ways. I think, again, what we talked about, people feeling less less heard by politicians and less engaged by politicians. I think people have disengaged from that, but I think people are participating in other social groups that also deal with some of these issues yeah um but i i do think it's it's not this fear or this belief that we can't solve anything i think there's just so many competing interests like mm. i don't think people in this area thought they couldn't solve climate change or they couldn't move it but there was a genuine financial interest to not believing this or, or to hiding this as, as long as possible so people wouldn't lose their value of their homes yeah. or so that the real estate market wouldn't crash. It's the same with like, like I said, we have the solutions, but there would, and with anything, there are winners and losers, right? With anything. Yeah. Um, and so implementing these solutions, which would have many more winners than losers, but the losers would lose so much financially that they have such a great, incentive to fight it and they have because they're the dominant force right now they have the money and the power and the influence to successfully fight it and so you said earlier that you feel like or or there's a general feeling that we're finally starting to maybe hit critical mass in terms of climate activism and you know this weekly strike on fridays right by young people and, and this kind of stuff um, and so what i would kind of posit to you is that that was always going to be the thing to have to make a difference. The idea that just a bunch of governments coming together and thinking, you know, even if they know we have the technology, even if they know we have the need, unless they're pushed to do it by what they actually care about, which is winning elections, um, they're not going to do it. And so, like, 
I I think I mean obviously the work is important to kind of inform people and put that pressure because it's st- but I think getting the message to the people is much more important than getting the message to the politicians. And so whether the people influence the politicians, because that's the world we currently live in, or they would have influenced the corporations in my, you know, libertarian topia, um, it's still about informing the people to make a difference. And and so, like, how do you feel about that? Because, like, you know, you spend your time and, and there's all of these organizations about forcing the governments and trying to engage with them. But they're only actually going to listen to what they care about, which is what the voters want. And so you have to really engage at that level. Yeah, I mean, I think when this really started coming to the forefront, and I mean, we've been, the UN negotiations that I've been at have been going on for 20 plus years, right? Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people in, in that, initially in the environment and the climate change world, believed we could come to a, to a political solution without needing mass mobilization, largely because of the Montreal Protocol and how we dealt with the ozone depletion issue. Right? We, that was much more of an acute issue, though, wasn't it? I mean, it was much more acute. It was also much more limited. I think that's... Ban aerosols, right? I think it was the limited yeah. scope of it. Okay. Um, I mean, aerosols while widely used, were widely used in a very limited sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And it's, e- that... it was easy enough for the companies using aerosols to shift to something else. It wasn't yeah, like it... questioning their right to produce hair products at all. It was just less of this or kind of... Or refrigerators or yeah. air conditioning or anything like that. Absolutely. Um, I think they also just had less money, to be honest. Yeah, it's that's It's not fair. exactly your your biggest industry in the world. (laughs) But I think that to a lot of people gave them a model saying, if we can come together to solve that so quickly, surely can come together to solve climate change, which will have so many more impacts, right? There, there was this maybe naivety. Yeah. But I think there was one of those of like, we've done it once we can do it again for this bigger problem. And here we are 20 something odd years later and still. (laughs) Yeah. Or maybe it was just, maybe it was just like, uh, what is it? Recency bias or whatever. Cause like we, you know, nuclear weaponry is still an issue that we haven't been able to fully solve. Right. And, and like, there's so many other global issues that we haven't been able to deal with, but there was one small one that was, and people are like, Oh look, we did it once, but it's like, well, Maybe look at the maybe you're too focused in on on that and you should get a broader perspective on how humanities interacted with each other more generally. Yeah. I mean I think it helped that it was also an environmental issue. So it was actually a very direct yeah, so relation, they thought, right? Yeah. Um Yeah. But I mean it is what it is. It's it's yeah. clearly it's gonna take mobilization by people. Um and in many different ways. I mean, you talk about wanting consumers to change their behavior, one of the biggest things is this idea of divestment, right? Of trying to take your money out of oil companies, mm-hmm. um, which has also gained a lot of steam and and um, and made some remarkable inroads um, lately. So, so there I was... Think, I don't, 
Yeah, go ahead. There was a video, I don't know if you saw Bill Gates talking about the idea that like renewables aren't even close to being able to replace oil and and, and these other energy sources, right? For for many um capacities right like for many capabilities we need have you seen that that was circulating i don't think i have when was this from maybe the world economic forum it was in the past you know three or four months and he basically said like you want to send a rocket to the moon with uh renewable energy like it's just not at a scale that we'd be able to actually use in many capacities or like if you need to smelt metal right like there's you need such a concentration of energy for so many um applications that to try and like as if we could switch right now to fully renewable is just not realistic yeah i mean i i definitely don't have a renewable answer for rocket to the moon yeah um and i'm a huge fan of space exploration but i'd say we could hold off for a couple of years on that one hmm. um i i mean I, and the other thing is the idea to me of, mean, of pressuring oil companies to create solutions to deal with the emissions is much more interesting to me and much more seems much more likely to be useful long term or actually happen, let's say short term, um, than to say, no, we're never using oil again. We're switching to air, uh, you know, wind and and solar. There must be a way to deal with the emissions. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people use the language carbon neutral or, and like, so they're not even saying zero emissions. Some people use the word zero emissions. Some people use carbon neutral, yeah. uh, which means you could potentially offset some emissions. Um, I think, I think carbon zero or emission zero would be very tough short term mm -hmm. but i think carbon neutral would not uh yeah. and i think again you, you, i mean you talked about technology and i wasn't sure about having a plane that could fly on electricity but slowly they're getting there um yeah. i think i saw there's a company in bc that is implementing i mean it's a smaller like it's no jets yeah they're like smaller planes but they're gonna go electric um, and there's also like biofuel ideas for, for jets right now, mm -hmm. which would at the very least reduce a lot of their emissions. But like, that's um, not going to happen within 12 years. Very unlikely that you'd get to a place of most commercial air travel being on these alternative, even testing, even safety standards takes a long time to get. Yeah, I'm, I believe and I, I could be wrong on where it happened, but I believe in the Middle East, they actually had the very first commercial biofuel flight within the last year. Right. And, and so, I mean, but to get that to scale. No, I, like, I, I believe the technologies are being developed or even have been proven valid. But to take talk about from getting from there to widespread use is not a quick process most of the time yeah most of the time i think with the right incentives or with the right motivation it could be mm -hmm. um and i think yeah i mean we're far far from even the discussion of that carbon zero or carbon neutral in 12 years let me tell you yeah um and while i think it's 
useful to be ambitious, I think we have to recognize that we're not even close to that. Um, I mean, we're like, like we said in Canada, we're not even close to the targets we've set. Yeah. So like, first we need honesty from the government and real action on the targets we set before we can turn on being more ambition, right? More yeah. ambitious. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's one of the great frustrations for me is, is that even the stuff we have supposedly made progress on, we've promised we're not delivering on. Yeah. Um, which yeah here's my uh solution if we unban aerosols and we poke a hole in the ozone layer can't all of the carbon just kind of like leak out (laughs) oh i wish it was that simple no um that won't work that won't work um there are and i mean you're, you're starting to get into a whole other sector of controversies, uh, which block is geoengineering. The sun. Block the sun. Actually, blocking the sun is probably one of the geoengineering technologies I would be most okay with. Yeah, you don't have to block um, all of it, just like a third of it or something. Yeah, dim it. Yeah, dim, dim it. the sun. I actually did I did a, a simulation in grad school about sending up basically satellites that would dim the sun mm-hmm. to try to lower climate change um and to me it has like i'm actually pretty against most geoengineering to me the idea of dimming the sun has the least amount of side effects as far as i'm aware of Uh, i mean the other stuff is like cloud seeding or um throwing um i guess ocean seeding as well uh to try to like cloud seeding in is to try to get more sun reflected back up. Yeah. Ocean seeding is to try to get it to absorb more carbon because the oceans are one, one of the biggest carbon sinks. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of these, I think, have impacts that we've not really considered yeah. and done studies. And as we've quite often learned, technology has side effects, and oftentimes we don't look at them before we implement the technology. And I, I'd hate to go down the road of, causing more problems while trying to solve this one it'd be nice to get something right for once but maybe it'll buy us another decade yeah and i mean i think there's a a a building argument that we may need geoengineering if we're to meet any of these targets yeah Um, it's the one that i think the the community the climate change community is resistant to um because it leads to a narrative of, oh, we'll just keep emitting because we have this magic technology. <laughs> First of all, none, none of these technologies have really been proven, and they're massively expensive. Yeah. Um, even carbon capture and storage has not really been done well and costs ridiculous amounts of money mm-hmm. to do. Um, it would obviously just be cheaper to make the transition to clean energy than it would be to do carbon capture and storage. It's another example of like pure stubbornness by by the energy companies and the fuel and oil companies and coal companies to stay in the business of coal and oil is to trying to market this. It's like clean clean coal drives me nuts. Clean coal and carbon capture and storage, both things that drive me nuts. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, and we continue to do research on those technologies. Um, I think it's one of those where, like, all hands on deck. 
um, every option is on is being looked at. Um, but I also don't think we should go running into a technological solution for a technological problem uh, when we have potentially other solutions on the table. And not yeah. to say the other ones aren't technological, but they're potentially less unknown technology and less massive impact. Yeah. Like, I mean, our oceans are so important for so many other things that if we screw them up, we will be causing some major problems, including a, as a food source, right? Yep. Yeah. So it's, let's play with, uh, you know, something we were a bit more knowledgeable about rather than uh, really you know, rolling the dice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I see it as a, as a option of last resort. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I have one last question I want to ask. Well, it's, a, it's, I guess, two questions. What are your, you know, guidance points for anyone listening? And, you know, about how they should, how you think they should look at the current state of climate uh, and, you know, and for governments, what they should do if they care about it. And two, what, what are you going to do when we eventually solve this? What are you going to shift your passion to? Um... <laughs> I, okay i think the first and the last question can be answered by the same thing okay which is uh i think i said this at the beginning i always have followed the idea of take the opportunities that are given to you yeah um which has led to a interesting and wandering path in some ways mm-hmm. um and definitely some people i think would be scared or frustrated or bewildered by my my path in yeah. life and not exactly a direct corporate up the ladder kind of path yeah uh, but one that has definitely taken me to very interesting places and to work on some very interesting things uh, I've definitely not had a boring 30 something years mm-hmm. um, I think in terms of action for governments I think I think the main thing is, there is someone giving them the solutions to the problem we have right now. Like literally they could pick up the phone and get a blueprint of what they need to do pretty much for any government in the world. Um, And yes, it would take a, like a large investment now, but actually I think most climate investments have proven to be, to have great returns. Um, And to think outside the box. I mean, we're like, we've talked a lot about energy, I think in this, yeah. but a lot of it is also, I mean, more investment in transit um, and in active transportation rather than just roads for cars and, and like a car centric um, world. I think that that's actually a really big one. And one of those where I talked about climate change touching on so many different issues mm-hmm. and having an impact. And I think, how we set up cities and how we design cities and moving away from a car centric city can have a huge lasting impact and not just for climate change, but for the health of our city, for the health of our communities, for the engagement of our communities. We talked about civic engagement and community engagement. And I think part of it is just the way we're set up in a very isolating kind of, of uh, community. Yeah. And, uh, and again, these aren't things that we need to be experimenting with and being pioneers on. These are things we can literally look around the world and replicate, especially in Canada. 
Um, we can look at Europe and and see the success they're having with car-free downtowns, with massive investment in in road and in, uh, bike infrastructure. And I mean, even even sidewalks can be kind of revolutionary in in, in Kitchener Waterloo sometimes. Like I literally cannot walk to my nearest grocery store because there's no sidewalk. It's like, mm-hmm. it'd yeah. be a kilometer walk on the shoulder of a road where people regularly go 80 to 100. Doesn't sound that friendly to me. No. And one of the things I've read that the biggest impact an individual can often have is cutting out beef because of clear cutting, because of methane emissions. Like it is actually quite impactful. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, the emissions from beef are quite large. Um, and I think it, it's also part of the problem is just the amount of beef. I I personally can't haven't cut out beef uh, and I'm in this world, tisk, fully tisk. immersed in this world. But I've definitely reduced my consumption. I yeah. don't actually cook beef at home very often. Um, I mostly have it if I go out. 20 ounce um, steak. Mm-hmm. You get a twenty ounce steak. Yeah, and you kill the environment a little bit. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it's one of those like, if if the only thing we were gonna do was change our diet, then we would have to cut out beef. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. But if we look at this problem holistically and we do, we tackle every sector of our lives, every part of our lives, then you can still enjoy a steak. Um, maybe not every day. But, mm. you know, once a week kind of thing or whatever. Like, it's, it's, I think people who oppose action on climate change easily paint it as this great sacrifice and as this great lifestyle change. But I think if we, if we act in every area, the impact you would see on your daily life would actually not be that high. All right. Well, you heard it here first, everyone. You don't have to be a vegetarian or vegan to help save the world. Just to do all the other things you need to do. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. I, I this was definitely an in, insightful conversation and uh, got my the gears in my head turning. So I, I appreciate you and I I appreciate you coming on and I hope you'll you'll come back another time and we can talk a bit further, especially as you know this develops in the coming years. Yeah, I, I think we also need to go a little bit more in depth in some of the democracy stuff. I think we could have a really interesting chat on that. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to have you back sometime soon. All right. Well, thanks for having me.